Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Ryan. I love that song. I love that song. Mary, did you know? Take your Bible quickly for just a moment this morning. As we focus on the Lord Jesus, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 with me. Isaiah chapter 9. All of the prophets of the Old Testament are very interesting. And one of the interesting techniques that they use under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God is taking what is a present crisis of that era and then projecting it much further into the future. We have that phenomenon here in Isaiah chapter 9, and we will get down to a couple verses in a moment where you're very familiar with them. They are verses oft quoted at Christmas. But one of the problems is that we don't really look at the context sometimes to really understand the importance of what the prophet is saying. The prophet spoke these words not only for us to understand they were fulfilled in the person of Christ, but he spoke them for a nation, the nation of Israel, that had gone through very dark days and they are words spoken of hope. Throughout her history, Israel had been plagued by foreign invaders. Often those foreign invaders came as a tool in the hand of God to bring judgment upon his disobedient people. When we come to Isaiah chapter 9, we find the prophet particularly focusing on the northern kingdom of Israel and the judgment that would come at the hand of Assyria. But then in the midst of that prophecy, he projects some 750 years into the future when there would be a bright light. For Israel at this juncture in her history, she could see nothing but utter devastation, the northern ten tribes. But there would come a day when the darkness would give way to the light, when the desperation would give way to joy, when the sorrow and destruction would give way to happiness and rejoicing. Look with me, please, at chapter 9, verse number 1 of the book of Isaiah. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the dimness that is speaking of darkness, dark days. Israel, by the way, as a nation, both in Old Testament history and in present day, has seen her fair share of dimness, of dark days. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Zebulun, by the way, would be the place where Nazareth is located, Naphtali, the place where Capernaum is located. Both of those cities key in the ministry of Jesus. Understand that Jesus' ministry was predominantly carried out in the northern section of Israel. He said, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. So we're speaking really of the entire northern swath of Israel. It was obvious that the Assyrians who would come from the east and come down through the north would attack in that direction, and they certainly did that. But the prophet says that this attack, though it would be imminent, would be something devastatingly horrific, and yet there is hope. Look at verse number two. The hope begins here. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Ladies and gentlemen, it does not matter how dark this world becomes. It does not matter how dark this nation becomes. It does not matter the depth into which the devil can hold this nation and put her under. There will come a day 
when the light will break through the darkness. You watch your TV news. You watch all the things happening in this world today, all the things happening in this nation. And it can become very unsettling unless you remember that one day the light will break through. The darkness will never prevail. Things can get desperate, they can get bad, they can get horrific. And yet the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Who were these people? Well, we already found out they were from the northern part of Israel, right? They would be the ones who would be subjected to the Assyrian captivity, and that would be horrific in every detail. But Jesus said there's coming a day when that land that was so taken over and destroyed would see great light. Pastor Marty, what could that possibly refer to? I don't have time to turn there, but if you were to jot this down, John 7, verses 40 through 53, Jesus Christ is that light. A moment ago I said he predominantly ministered in that area, and all of this in fulfillment of prophecy. So the people, verse 2, that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, now wait a second, Pastor Monty. He's talking about destruction. Then he's talking about light. Then he's talking about a restored nation that is precisely in the plan of God. I personally believe that verse number three is to a time yet future to our day. Verse 4, the Bible says, Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of the shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And the key to my interpretation is verse number 5. For every battle of the warrior is confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. Describes a battle. The Assyrians were known as possibly the most vicious of all invaders. It would be inappropriate for me to describe what they did to their captives and how they suppressed nations under their hand. And obviously there would be noise, and obviously there would be blood. But there's something different about this last battle, and I want you to see this. Something different about this last battle. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. That battle has yet to take place. That battle, by the way, is described in the book of Revelation. It is a battle at the very end of the age when Christ, the conquering king, will return to put down all of the enemies of the Jewish state. And so scattered will the battlefield be with armaments that they will be destroyed in fire. Pastor Monty, how is this possible? How is it possible that evil will be put down in this world? How is it possible that the light will shine and good will triumph? Look at verse number six. Here is the answer. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is born. Is this speaking of a mere political leader? No, we'll see in a moment. It could not possibly be. For unto us a child is born... And unto us a son is given. In our Christian context, we understand this to be a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. Oh, Pastor Monty, you'd be reading into that. No, no. Continue the verse, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Note the next words. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Ladies and gentlemen, that is messianic. 
That is a promise by a Jewish prophet that one day there would arise a Messiah who would be the governor or would be in the governing position over his kingdom. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Let's identify him. His name shall be called Wonderful. That Hebrew word exclusively is used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself. He will be the counselor, not in the sense of a counselor that you sit and talk to on a couch somewhere. He'll be the counselor, the one with wisdom to rule and to reign over his kingdom. He will be, note these words, the mighty God, the El Gibbon in Hebrew, the mighty God. Who is the mighty God? It is Jehovah himself. Who is Jehovah? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Unmistakable teaching of the deity of Jesus Christ. He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. If those words don't make you think of God, I don't know what will. Do you see that in this passage we have both the Father and the Son mentioned together in two verses? This baby who is born is no mere infant. He is God the Son and the Son of God. And he came to be born in Bethlehem's manger ultimately with the purpose of dying for our sins. He will be the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. My, how the world needs peace today. The Holy Land, God's sacred geography, is now racked by war and invaders who mean nothing else but to shed the blood of the innocents. And yet one day the Prince of Peace will come. There's no ceasefire that will bring it. There's no amount of Israel giving away land which she has no right to give away. That's God's land that is given to her. There is no right, uh, th th there is no way that we can possibly appease evil. But one day Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, will come from heaven's glory and will put down evil entirely. He will be the Prince of Peace. Verse number seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. What does his government consist of? Look at the verse. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the promise that the line of David would never cease, that Davidic kings, their line would be crowned by the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judge, judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. Preacher, that sounds like a rather utopian dream. It is a utopian vision that is given to us in the Bible but will only be accomplished by Jesus Christ. It will only be accomplished when he comes again. He came the first time in human form, in human flesh. God robed in flesh. He came the first time for the purpose of tabernacling, living among us. He came the first time for the purpose of demonstrating to us who God is. And for the first time, men saw God in human form. And he came the first time specifically to die on the cross for our sins. In introducing Jesus to the nation of Israel, John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You hear me, please, everyone. There is no answer apart from Jesus. 
There is, ah, Pastor Monty, if we elect the right people. I'm sorry, that's not the answer. The only answer for worldwide peace, a utopian world. Well, Pastor Monty, if we, if we just all go new age, that would fix it. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess. That won't fix it. There is no human being that can fix the mess this world is in. Only Jesus Christ when he comes. The answer, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Jesus Christ. And the end of the last verse I just read reads, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Look this way and I'm done. As big a mess as this world is, as big a mess as this nation is, listen carefully, as big a mess as your life may be, there is one answer and his name is Jesus Christ. And I'd invite you this morning, if you've never come to know him as Savior, to trust him, to believe upon him the way the Bible says, I'd invite you this morning to trust him, believing that he died for your sins, that he rose again, trusting him. The way to fix it is not self-improvement. The way to fix it is not a voting booth. The way to fix it is not some kind of a legislative reform. The way to fix it is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And one day, when he returns, all of this will be fixed because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for a scripture based upon an historic event that projects the glory of the kingdom of God into the far future, even future of our day, though perhaps not that far away, we would hope. Father, I pray if anyone has come this way and does not know Christ as their Savior, that this very day they would turn to him in saving faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's